And we're here. Hello. Hello. A little early for a festivus, but. It is. Hello, all. Welcome. It is Generational Change Monday night. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. <clears throat> and yeah, uh, the climate crisis is real. For, oh, those of you who don't, for, for those of you who don't know. And, and if you're in South Florida, get your scuba certification, people. I'm telling you. <laughs> get your scuba certification. You know, it only takes rain to fall on North Miami, where Jen is from, for about, I don't know, 30 minutes. It's bad. And it's flooding. Flooding. Not even just like, oh, there's a little bit of water. No. no it's flooding. Flooding. There's parts of Miami that really are really bad, like underwater. And so when we think about the climate crisis in the United States... You think about you think about Florida because we are right in it, literally. Oh, we're in it. Sea level rise is a direct correlation to the melting of the polar ice caps. That is a fact. And so now, because it is becoming so devastating, are we going to take the initiative to really slow down the carbon footprint that is emitted on this planet day in and day out? I don't know, but did I have the opportunity to see a documentary? which is a follow-up to, not, is it knock down the house or knocking down the house? I, I don't know. Is it I forget. Now it's been a couple of years. Knocking down All right. the house. It's the movie. It was the movie about AOC and Corey. And it was what, Amy Valela and- It is knock Paula down Jean. the house. I, so I, got, I should trust my instincts when it I was, say it the first time. It was Amy, Paula, Jean, Corey, and AOC, yeah? That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. And the good news is, is that, wait, so Amy- so two of the four are in Congress right now, which is good. But we definitely need Double K. We, we love you. Thanks for always having our back as we have yours. And of course, we do believe that everything obviously starts and ends with the labor movement, which we'll have a lot to talk about here. But of course, the follow-up to this conversation regarding Knock Down the House is what ultimately led AOC into Congress. Cori Bush followed behind her. And of course, the climate crisis is without question, you know, it is the it is the monumental issue of our time. Uh, I know a lot of people do not actually want to believe that, but we're seeing it every day here. And I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that truth. So the follow-up to that movie, to that documentary, is to the end, which talks about the climate crisis and what it actually takes to fight for it on Capitol Hill. As we have said many times before, the impact that we're going to have, the last place it's going to happen is on the Hill. It's going to happen at home, and it's going to happen with cultivating this power infrastructure that is needed through labor because there is a, and we'll talk about this with Rachel, there is a great part of the documentary which she basically identifies what it's like running through the maze that is Washington, D.C. It isn't necessarily that it's said, it's just kind of understood that this is how it is, and if you get in the way, we will squash you and get you out of town. And that's more or less how it's been. So we need to keep building that infrastructure. So without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome the filmmaker who made Knock Down the House and To the End. Rachel Lears, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, thank you so much. It's great to meet you guys. It's nice to meet you too. Thank you for coming on. I'm just going to change this. Yes, now do, it's kind of distracting. I, I know, I told you, we have to do this. Beautiful. You like that one? Okay, <laughs> yes, that's okay. it's just one. distracting. Okay. Well, it's a nice, it's like a rainbow. Whatever, it's, nice, it's better. Aesthetically pleasing. So Rachel, how did you get started, obviously, as a filmmaker? How did Knock Down the House come about? And then obviously, how did it lead to To the End, which has just been released? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I started uh, making films when I was in my mid-20s, which is a bit later than a lot of people start. Um, I, I, I found it through a graduate program that I was in. I was, I was studying anthropology and ethnomusicology, and I found this program at NYU where I was that was uh, doing a combination of history theory and production of documentary, and I just fell in love with the art form. This was a while ago now, almost 20 years ago, so um, it was before digital video was just everywhere, but it was right when that was starting to become more accessible. And um, I had a background in photography and music and was really interested in um, politics and languages and people. And I just felt like this art form is going to allow me to just explore everything I care about all at once. Um, so it took me a while to uh, mm. sort of do that career change out of academia and and be working on, on film full time. But actually right around the same time I finished my dissertation in anthropology, um, Occupy Wall Street started here in New York City. Yeah. So um, it, I just dove into that and I became part of the media group and the immigrant worker justice group. And out of that, um, I had been making films for a, a while at that point in uh, as part of my graduate program. And, you know, in addition to that, and I, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I wasn't doing it full time. But I really um, was awakened to social movements and the labor movement, which as you were just uh, Noting, So I, I became uh, uh, involved mm. in, through the Immigrant Worker Justice Group in um, uh, making a film about a group of undocumented immigrant workers who formed an independent union at a bakery on the Upper East Side in Manhattan and occupied their store with Occupy Wall Street activists and won this historic contract in 2012. And, and that really set me on the road of making um, films about social justice, you know, character-based films about incredible people who are uh, transforming their own lives and their communities and, and just, you know, achieving historic things by engaging in collective action. Um, so Knock Down the House, uh, I, started, I started working on it the day after the 2016 presidential election. I had an eight-month-old baby at the time and was thinking about taking a break from political filmmaking, but then with the results of the election, I felt like, you know what, I have this skill set, maybe I should keep doing this. Uh, so I'd heard about the brand new Congress Justice Democrats project of recruiting extraordinary, ordinary people to run for Congress. And I contacted them and through uh, speaking with those organizers, ended up on on that road, which has was several years in the making. And then, of course, that came out in 2019. Um, and that project uh, Knocked Down the House really overlapped with To the End as well. So as we were in post-production for Knocked Down the House in the fall of 2018, that was the same time that the UN IPCC report came out, which you might right. remember. It was like yeah. such a big one where they said years. it was 12 years. Right. right. That's what that yeah. was the 12 years report. By 2030, we've got to make all these rapid, far-reaching, and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, right? So that was when uh, Sunrise Movement occupied uh, Nancy Pelosi's office with AOC, Green New Deal launches into public consciousness. We were already in conversation with um, Ocasio-Cortez and her team about doing a follow-up project that had something to do with the climate crisis. And very quickly, it sort of coalesced around uh, the Green New Deal and these four key players behind the Green New Deal. So Varshini Prakash of Sunrise Movement, Alexandra Rojas of Justice Democrats, who I'd also known for several years at that point because she'd been behind the scenes with Knock Down the House, 
um, and Rihanna Gunwright, who is the uh, one of the policy architects of the Green New Deal. Um, so yes, as as you noted, it explores the maze of Washington D.C. What's it like when a movement gets a few feet in the doors of the halls of power? And it's pretty complicated, but they actually found their way out the other end of the maze and and through a combination of inside and outside organizing and pressure, um, managed to really shift the window so that we do have climate policy for the first time in U.S. history. It's not enough, has some problems, but um, but it's a big step and due in no small part to the work of, of these incredible women that we follow. I so appreciate what you're doing. And this is you, something that you just said really made me have this thought like, We've always been big proponents that there has to be an inside and an outside strategy that has to be working simultaneously. One of the biggest impediments are when the people on the inside criticize the people on the outside and vice versa. And I don't mean legitimate criticism, but I mean getting in each other's way and not realizing that everybody has something they can bring to the table. It might not be the exact way you would do it, right? And what you're doing is you're in both worlds. You're actually combined, you're taking the people from the movement and bringing that into the political sphere, which is really cool. It's like you're combining those two things. It's like a, I don't even know. It's like a, like a cross pollination. It, well, it's cross pollination, but it's like, it's just real, it's really cool because what you're doing is bringing those two things together. And it really needs that because there's so many people on the outside are so resentful and angry on the people on the inside. And some of it is valid. Um, a certain amount of it is very valid, but they're also extremely ignorant as to how things work. And it's very easy to be like a Monday morning quarterback in a lot of cases. I mean, it's, I think that some of the criticism is valid and some of it is just unproductive. Right. And what you're doing is sort of over, like sort of getting over some of that. And I, I really appreciate that very much. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, mm. I totally agree with everything you said. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for ordinary people to feel very disillusioned or even cynical about our political system, but at the same time, it is what we've got right now. And, um, you know, even around the question of voting, which, you know, the, the film is really about so much more than voting. It's about get it, getting involved uh, at, at so many different levels in movements. But um, sometimes I, I have this, you know, people are, are asking about, you know, is it, is it, does it even make a difference? You know, do, does my vote even count? And, and it absolutely does. Like you can vote uh, strategically and also organize for the things you really, really believe in. Um, at a at a at a higher level, even if the the person you're voting for isn't perfect. But the thing that is uh, is really exciting about the the projects we've been working on is is seeing when there is actual like really strong alignment between the movements on the outside and 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 the people on the inside. Um, so they're working very in a very coordinated way. So that's that's what we always set out to explore uh, in this film and. Um, you've got, of course, the Sunrise Movement, you know, putting pressure from the outside through direct action and a you know, yeah. variety of different tactics. You've got um, Ocasio-Cortez and the squad working on the inside through this uh, strategy within the Progressive Caucus, you know, not to get too wonky about it, but they're trying to push the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which itself is, you know, bigger than them, but they're uh. trying to push that to take us further stands to to do you know to to 
push for for certain things in the political deal making with respect to the rest of the house and the party leadership and the president and the senate and all of those you know those big players so the cpc actually played a huge role um in the past couple of years with that which you know because the 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 justice democrats is are able to uh, you know, elect this group of people that's really strong, that doesn't, they don't take any corporate funding and they are really strong on a lot of these issues, they can push the CPC to take those stronger stands a lot of times. So then, you know, we're following also, we've got, um, you know, so I look at it as like Sunrise is outside, AOC is inside. Yeah. Uh, Rihanna Gunn-Wright is trying to get the uh, ideas from the outside into the inside and um, and Justice Dems is, is trying to get the uh, uh, people from the outside to the inside. And I just saw a message from Zaina Day. Hey, Zaina. Yeah. <laughs> speaking with Rachel Lears, filmmaker, <laughs> director of Knock Down the House, and recently to the end, you know, one of, uh, I mean, I, I really like your friend Alexander Rojas. Um, and one of the things in particular I liked was the fact that she was able to sit through a CNN interview, very similar to our friend Nina Turner, sit next to Hillary Rosen and allow uh. her to basically cut her up at the knees and just be like, just take it, just let it be. You're trying to convince this particular audience uh. that is very comfortable in their livelihoods uh, that our side is actually right and theirs is wrong. And so acting... Uh, reacting to that type of, uh, call, you know, basically like told her that she was immature and childish. And it's like, you know, it's typical Hillary Rosen, Anita Dunn, that entire group um, that basically are subservient to the corporate power of the Democratic Party. And so the fact that she was able to handle that the way that she was, I think really says a lot. And there is something to be said for recognizing that a lot of the early stages of the movement have to involve being willing to just take a whole bunch of body blows from people that are going to do everything in their power to stop this change from happening. Like you pointed out in the documentary, ExxonMobil will spend hundreds of millions of dollars on TV advertising alone to convince you that what they're doing is actually helping the environment and not killing Oh my God. Yeah. And I just have to point out about that clip where um, Alexandra Rojas is on, on CNN. It was one of her first appearances on CNN. The, uh, the anchor actually introduces her as uh, from junior Democrats. She actually says junior Democrats. Don't so think for just, a second that wasn't done deliberately. Oh my God. It's, yeah. It's just one of those little details that I don't think everyone catches. But yeah, it's, so it's so belittling. And um, yeah, I mean, we really wanted to show as well and really explore directly the role of the media in preventing, um, you know, in preventing the climate action that the scientists say is necessary and that we know we need. Um to address this crisis, and you know, not just on climate, it's it's all of these issues that are interconnected. All of the the crises of, you know, our, our economic inequality, racial inequality, just everything. Um, you know, the the power structures that stand in the way of progress include the mainstream media, and so uh, you know, you can really see that in the film through Rojas's experiences uh, with CNN, and we also try to show it through. Uh, you know, various archival montages. But I think it's really about uh, shifting the horizon of possibility, right? So when the media is, they first, you know, they're not, they don't cover climate enough. Um, <laughs> that is a huge problem in and of itself. And when they do, they don't, they don't make the connections between climate disasters, 
the the politics that they're only covering in terms of horse races and they're not covering the stakes of it. They rarely cover the activism. Um, they never talk about theories of change. They never talk about, you know, what are some ways that things have actually changed in big ways in the future? What are some ways that they could be changing now? What are the things that people have to do to get involved, to change things? Like those are just not topics that are covered, you know? So I think it's understandable. Um, that's a huge part of the reason why people do feel disillusioned and, and feel like um, their voice doesn't make a difference and that there isn't any way that anything can change. So, so that makes it all the more important. I mean, for us, it's a big part of why we make documentaries, independent documentaries, long form documentaries that you can really get into an issue over a period of time, really get on into it with, with, you know, details and nuance that, that you can't get to in a, you know, in the 24 hour news cycle or on social media. So, so that's one of the things that, that we really feel like documentaries can contribute to this media ecosystem. Speaking with Rachel Lears, director of To The End, uh, I can tell you definitely had a lot of B-roll footage at one of the key points of the documentary, which is with, uh, I don't want to say her name wrong, uh, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, um, when she initially was uh, doing that, um, I guess what you would call sort of a powwow with all different uh, elements of uh, the, the climate movement and hearing a whole bunch of different opinions, you know, regarding what is it going to take in order for us to really come to the middle. Uh, we believe that the key to the success of the climate movement is the success of the labor movement. Bringing that to the forefront is how we are going to be able to do that. If Anyone thinks that the only way we're going to do this is by having these divided uh, coalitions that's going to focus on this element and that element. I believe, we believe labor is the great equalizer. It's how you bring the most amount of people together. And case in point, you have a lot of people in, let's say, we, we recently spoke with one of the leaders of the Teamsters Union down here, and they believe in a lot of the things that we're fighting for. And they have just as many Bernie supporters as they do Trump supporters. Yep. And having that intersectionality on that front, I think, is how we're going to get past the corporate power infrastructure mm -hmm. that is the fossil fuel industry, anything you could think of. That's where we stand. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think, um, I mean, as I mentioned, like my sort of, it was really transformational for me in my political education and development to work with the labor movement. And, and I, even though my films have not focused on that per se, um, for the last couple of years, I think every, everyone we're working with is very much on board with that, with that, um, you know, the central importance of labor in these conversations. And, you know, as Paula Jean Swearingen used to always say uh, when, when we were making Knock Down the House, and I, I know she would continue to say it, that it's a completely false choice. The idea that you have to choose between jobs and the environment uh, is, is, is a completely false choice that is being sold to people. Um, of course, everyone deserves clean, safe, good jobs, um, as well as a clean, safe, good environment to live in. And they're, um, you know, that is just should should be basic human rights. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think that um, it, it's been really interesting to watch. It's, you know, with a film like this, it's it covers a lot of ground and there's a lot of of things that we didn't have the space to get into. Um, so there's a lot of things that happened on the ground that, uh, you know, that don't end up being in the, 
that don't end up in the film or that we're just not able to get into with, with total uh, depth. But, um, but a lot of the folks in that room, in, in that scene that you're talking about, there are uh, labor voices in that room. There are union representatives in that room. The, what Rihanna ended up, where that work ended up going um, that Rihanna Gunwright was involved in was towards the formation of the Green New Deal Network, um, which is a coalition that includes at least the SEIU. I am not sure which other unions are part of it, but it's very much, you know, the goal of it is to include labor at that table as well. Um, when you see um, Alexander Rojas campaigning for Justice Democrats candidate uh, Jessica Cisneros in Texas, um, the AFL-CIO of Texas was behind that campaign, um, as well as other JD candidates in Texas, because I, I spoke to someone on the ground um, and, and she was saying, you know, we know this transition is coming. We want to have a seat at the table, right? So uh, the whole uh, vision of the Green New Deal has always been centrally about jobs and justice. And it's about good union jobs, not just, it's about turning, uh, you know, it's about just transition for fossil fuel workers. It's about uh, unionizing green jobs that already exist in sectors like care, which we don't always talk about as green jobs, but they absolutely are. So, so I think it's just a very important piece of the equation, both when we think about what the transition um, away from fossil fuels should look like. Of course, unions have to be part of that table, but I also think that labor and the labor movement is just part of any political and economic and socioeconomic change that we want to see. Um, it just has to be that, that type of organizing is a, a huge part of how, um, how ordinary people can, you know, achieve uh, collective power. And, uh, and, and that translates, you know, into wins at the level of the workplace, but it can also it translate into building power for um, for policy as well. Yeah, I think also one of the problems, and I've always thought this, it's branding and marketing, you know, and I feel the same about when we talk about the Green Party as I do about the Green New Deal. I think that the way it was sold and branded, and I think a lot of it was very intentional, that it was almost set up for not being able to necessarily um, succeed, like, it's just wrong to go with that branding. It turns off so many people. The concept of it is, is good. When we say things like clean energy grid, we say things like job guarantee, we say those types of things. They're much more, I think, populist sounding in nature. And when you say something like Green New Deal, it turns off people. And I don't know exactly why. It, it, there's an affiliation with that to me where it's like, Oh, they're just a bunch of left-wing hippies talking out tree-hugging and all that. It's much easier to cut it down because when you have a slogan, it's easy for corporate media to dive right into it and say, oh, this is just pie in the sky. It's going to cost. Well, it's totally going to cost $100 trillion if people are but crazy. But th this was something else I want to say yeah. is that the reason that that's happening is the same people, the overlords that own the fossil fuel industry and own the military industrial complex, they also run our media. So we're only going to get a certain amount of information that is going to be accurate from anything that's mainstream regarding this. That's what I, I mean, they're, they're in bed with fossil fuel industry. Why would they want to be promoting a clean energy grid? Right. They're, I mean, they're not going to promote anything even 
I, I think they're afraid of being seen to promote anything that involves that would involve change. Right. Um, and therefore, they're promoting the status quo, which is, of course, a very strong ideological position in and of itself. But um, yeah, I actually think the the main thing that happened with the phrase Green New Deal, tra- tracing it, um, yeah. was that the, the right wing really, uh, really pounced on it and turned it into a meme on the right. It was actually polling really well um, before that happened. So when that happened, that kind of turned uh, turned a lot of people, a lot of people have negative associations with it through that. Um, I think the, the intent was, of course, to, um, you know, reference the original New Deal, which is obviously, you know, uh, a, a populist project in American history and to, um, you know, correct the, the shortcomings of the original New Deal, which mostly benefited white men. Yes. So, um, so in any case, you know, I, whatever you call it, the exactly. ideas are the same, which is that we need to do this decarbonization. We need to do it fast and we need to do it in a way that creates good union jobs and, um, and creates a more just society in the process because that's going to be a more stable society that can deal with the climate disasters that are already baked in and coming down the pike. Rachel, we have a very, uh, what I would consider an intersectional uh, crowd that follow our channel. And Can I just correct Metalopoly? Right? It's not cow farts, it's cow burps. Sorry, continue. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, you know, one thing that we've noticed that a lot of conservatives, especially libertarian conservatives, do agree with is we should reduce our carbon footprint, but they are very gung-ho on nuclear. Now, I know there's a lot of people who have difference of opinion, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, nuclear does not have a carbon footprint. And if that's what's going to get us off of coal and natural gas, and it's the fastest way to convince people in states like Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, that fracking has to go by the wayside and that we really have to find another path forward. Um, how do you see, if at all, nuclear playing a role? Because I do think that this is a key issue that can really unite a lot of people. Granted, we saw what happened with fusion the other day, but we're not, you know, we're clearly not there we're yet. Far, we're not there yet. No, no. I yeah. think those headlines were a little overblown. But um, <laughs> I clicked on it. I was like, really? Um, <laughs> not quite yet. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I... Listen, I my I see my goal and and our goal with the film was was less about getting into the the nitty gritty details of which technology or or which specific approach, but we we're more uh, interested in the the scale of uh you know we wanted to really push forward the idea that we need policy, not just individual action. We need massive government policy. It has to be on the scale of the crisis and it has to be intersectional with jobs and justice. So that was sort of our main point. Um, so, you know, we don't get into questions of, uh, of particular um, energy sources in the film. That said, I will say my personal um, stance is that uh, is no new nuclear, that we shouldn't be dismantling the, the plants that exist right now, if they are operating soundly. But from what I have read, the cost of wind and solar has gone down so much in the last few years that it's now actually more expensive to and takes longer to build new nuclear than it does to build new wind and solar. And therefore, that doesn't actually make economic sense. Whereas, you know, five or 10 years ago, maybe it did. 
with the with the way things were at that time, but that at the moment that's not how it's seen. And then I think also very uh, it's very important to remember from an environmental justice perspective, um, any technology that creates hazardous waste is going to be poisoning somebody, and. Uh, the question is, who's it going to be poisoning? And usually it's low income and BIPOC communities oh, yeah. that, that oh, are, are going to be uh, dealing with that, whether it's nuclear or fossil fuels. So that's why, you know, it, nuclear is not, uh, it, it's clean in terms of carbon, but it's not a clean energy source in the sense that it does produce hazardous waste. Right. So, you know, reasonable people can disagree about the details. Um, and I, you know, do not claim to be a, a scientist or an economist on this level, but that's my opinion from what I've read uh, most recently. I think that's fair. Uh, series four nuclear is supposed to be able to um, replenish nuclear waste. Uh, I mean, again, that's one person's uh, vested interest in that industry that, you know, again, that would obviously need to be proven. I think the bottom line is we need to just continue to build out what we're doing as of right now, which is clearly this intersectional labor movement, and it can be led in the energy field because again, you know, whether it is solar, whether it is wind, whether it is geothermal, whether it is hydro, there are, uh, whether it's hemp, you know, there is a lot of different energy sources that are out there that people that Alex works with on the Hill, that Corey works with on the Hill, they are paid an ungodly amount of money to tell you that the way it's now, the way it is now is never going to change and it has to stay this way. Well, when somebody's paying you $250,000 a year, it's very easy to look the other direction. And people think that while that may not seem like, a, you know, an astronomical amount of money, well, if you're making 50000 a year, whatever job you have, and you can, you know, times it by five, we'll see how you feel about it. And, and that to me is really the, that, that is the ultimate issue here. And that is the ultimate issue for anybody who chooses, whether it is Jessica Cisneros, whether it was Jen against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, whether it's anybody who is running for federal office, who is running against representatives of either party that are completely bought and paid for by corporate special interests. They will go- Specifically fossil fuel industry and the military industrial complex. Yeah. And they will go to no length. At, mm -hmm. there, there is no length that they will not go to in order to prevent this, as you suggested, as we've suggested, this generational change that is coming. It's just a question of when it's going to happen. Uh, are there any projects that you're working on right now, potentially for the future, that you want to let the audience know about? And I think very importantly, are there independent media channels that are actively trying to have you on to promote your film? Because according to some people in our chat and on social media, it seems that Fox News was the only one who even mentioned that you had this documentary coming out, which gives me a lot of concern because this is a serious issue and this is a very good documentary and people should be watching it as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, it's weird. Um, we, we did have a, a bit of a troll thing going on and um, had more more high profile negative press than than uh, sympathetic. Of course, we have gotten um, plenty of sympathetic press as well. But I would I would love to be uh, to be speaking with more more independent media as well as the film rolls out across platforms. It's no longer in theaters, but it's going to be on the the TVOD platforms. You know, uh, iTunes, Amazon, uh, that type of thing for rent and per excuse me for rent and purchase. Um, 
in, uh, I believe, uh, within the next month or so. Um, and then uh, it'll, it'll be rolling out across streaming as well. So, you know, it, it's available for community screenings in January and educational screenings. If everybody, anybody wants to do that type of thing with their community, you can find us on our website to the endfilm.com. So we're having a, we are, are putting together a, um, impact campaign for this film as we do for all our films and I do not currently have another film project in the works because I am working on uh, the impact campaign and um, and it's just you know it's a lot it's a lot to to get a film out and and into the world and we've got some amazing people working on that campaign which is really about strategically making sure the film gets to the right people, yeah. um, doing the grassroots outreach, building out a social media um, strategy, uh, making sure that it's getting to movement organizations. We've talked to some unions that want to use it in their political education with their membership. Um, so there's just a lot of, uh, of different things that, that can happen that, that we need to you know, take some, take some legwork to make sure that happens. But, um, but yeah, the, the media has been interesting. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we certainly are, are, are glad to be speaking with you all and your listeners and um, it, it, just cause you're uh, hearing about it here first, you know, um, that, Check check it out. You know you can watch yeah, our God, trailer. It's it out there. <laughs> this is See, a, this and if is we had the updated website that I wanted, we would be able to put this. We would be, we would be done with this, and we would put the link on the website and all of that. But we need to update our website. That that's sort of me nagging. I tried the best updating. I could. I got the <laughs> word out there. All we're right. small but mighty. But but we're, we're small trying, but mighty. You know that's. I hear doing. that. Small but yeah. mighty words. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and what you're doing very much. I appreciate what you all are doing too. Thanks so much for having Thank me on. Thank you. We'll be in touch, Rachel. Happy holidays and thank Sounds you. Sounds great. Everybody. Same to you as well. Take care. Take care. Bye. Obviously, this movie uh, was very good. Um, I like the I, I like the way that Rachel films in particular. I think that I've I've always been a documentary film guy. That's the style that I prefer, uh, especially when she was able to go into the halls of Congress and really show what it's like being in these offices. And again, one of the key things that Rachel is able to show in this documentary that I think a lot of you who are constantly bashing Alex and other people who are on the Hill, there are corporate lobbyists at every turn on every street surrounding the U.S. Capitol. It's an infestation. Everywhere. <laughs> They're everywhere. It's like an infestation. When you see somebody walking on the street in a suit, chances are they're working for some lobbying firm. And let me assure you, the lobbying firm they're working for is not working on your behalf. <laughs> There's a very small percentage of people that are lobbying Capitol Hill that are doing it for the right reasons. There are yeah. people that are lobbying for higher CEO pay, less regulations on Wall Street, yet less regulations in Silicon Valley. I realize this is why this is what I actually went. That's why I went to law school was to be a lobbyist. Yeah. But I always went to do it for nonprofit. Like I always went to law school to lobby for things. Like I always wanted to work for like the Innocence Project. I'm sure Rachel like has seen this, and I would revise everybody to see this old classic Simpsons episode of Mr. Oh. Lisa Goes to God, Washington. Why? It is Let's one of always the always come down to the Simpsons because there's a great line in the uh, episode where the corporate lobbyist goes to the corrupt politician and says, you. "We would like to drill for oil in Teddy Roosevelt's head," and he's like, "I don't know. I think people will notice this." He opens up the suitcase with a million dollars, and he says. Teddy who? I mean, but in a way that kind of crystallizes exactly what goes on. 
And are you so, talking about the six grandfathers? The mountain that you refer to as Mount Rushmore? Is that what Yeah, you're that's the to? thing I'm referring to. Okay. That's called the Six Grandfathers. But who better to bring on next onto our wonderful show than somebody who actually ran for Congress in our nation's capital and is now going to be a commissioner in maybe the most underserved part of Washington, D.C. And the, I always found the dichotomy and juxtaposition in that area just stifling. Oh, absolutely. Like the, It's like the center of our governance, and yet the poverty and the need is so great. Like, you couldn't put those two things any closer together. Step outside of Foggy Bottom, step outside of Georgetown, and walk into Ward 7 or Ward 8 of Washington, D.C. Well, most people that aren't from there wouldn't go there. That's true, but that's where real Washingtonians actually live that have been there for generations and have been completely underserved for a very long time. But the good news is, is that I think they may actually be getting somebody who will actually be serving their community for the first time in a long time. Reverend Wendy will- Wendy Hamilton, welcome back to Generational Change. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Hi, it's good to see you. <laughs> good to see you all as well. And I know you almost called me Wendy Williams, and I'm going to let that slide. I bit the tongue, didn't let it happen. It just rolls off like that, you know. It's, it's, it's okay. How you doing? No, I'm kidding. I get that often, so it's fine. It's fine. But Reverend Wendy Hampton, that's me. Season's greetings, Reverend, so, and congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Oh so one of the things about, you know, people that don't realize that when you're the representative from D.C., you don't have a say-so. Right. You don't really have a say-so. So when you were running for that, and granted, I'm not necessarily a fan of the person sitting there as we got like totally ghosted because of, we don't need to talk about thou shall not be named, but so, <laughs> but the position that you're in now to me yeah. is seemingly so much more capable of doing so much more for people than you actually could have done in Congress. Right. Hence my motivation for running for this particular yeah. role. Right. Yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, I was running for the federal office against a 32 year incumbent. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, I say that to say we knew it was a long shot, if you will, but it was one worth taking because at the end of the day, these folks who are staying in these offices past their their, you know, date of, of real good, effective service. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, that's um, generous. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be generous, uh, <laughs> you know, but not being challenged for whatever reasons is undemocratic. So yeah. if, if not for anything other than to give the residents of D.C. options on the ballot, I ran. And I knew that there were people who, if they had another choice to vote for, they would opt to vote for that. And they did. And so I'm very proud of the work we did being a first time you know, candidate for that role in that race. We got nearly 8,000 votes, which is pretty decent for, you know, a first timer running for an office such as that. So I'm very proud of what we did uh, in that congressional race. Uh, And so when it ended, uh, you know, I had to take a break because I had been running for like 18 months. I tried to get that early start. Uh, So you know what that's like. It's (laughs) after the, the race was over, like that next day, I was like, don't call me. Don't look for me. I don't, don't, I, you know, I had to just sort of decompress from everything. And I took maybe like a couple of weeks off just, you know, to kind of get my, my grounding, my bearings back. But what I recognized is that the energy to serve and the issues that I was trying to address still remain. And so what I, you know, started thinking about was how can I 
redirect this energy? Like, what can I do? Because oftentimes I'll see, you know, we'll all see someone run for office and then they don't win, they disappear. And I'm like, well, where'd you go? The issues that we were running for that you cared about still exist. And I'm not saying you have to be in elected office to do them, but it certainly does make it, you know, a a lot more um, feasible in in many ways and in many settings to be able to do that. So this uh, commissioner position became available in my neighborhood in the Great Ward 8 that you all talked about earlier. And I decided I was going to run for that, which some people were saying, wow, you're going to run again for something, you know, so quickly uh, because that race was coming up. These are nonpartisan positions that are only run in the general. So I came right out of primary, took, you know, took a couple weeks off. Then I had to, you know, gear up to run because the general was coming up right. in, uh, in November. So How that's much- amazing. Yeah. I think it took me a year. I think it took me a year to feel it was all, it actually took me longer after the election to feel normal than it did after giving birth to feel normal. <laughs> I can feel bad. Well, a, a different, of course, is obviously running in an urban district versus a suburban district yeah. where you constantly have to be running all over the place. You know, thankfully, oh, it's a limited God. amount of space that one really has to canvas and cover. I mean, granted, it's still a lot of work, 100%. Right. How much of an impact would you say your congressional run made in your ability yeah. to win the commissioner race? Well, I think certainly from a name recognition standpoint, it did give me some familiarity with with folks. So instead of starting at at zero, perhaps, if you will, and and maybe not zero, maybe I'll say maybe starting at 10, I was able to start at the 50. You know, let's put it that way. So people were aware of who I was. And as I was out there, you know, greeting people, more people were like, not who's that chick? Like, oh, I, I saw your sign or I, you know, I remember you. Oh, or that's great. So I do think that that helped specifically because I'm not sure if you all are aware, but my race <laughs> went down to the wire. Uh, when you talk about the importance of uh, democracy and every vote counting, yeah. um, even though it's a you know small district, it came down to six votes. I won by six. Wow. Votes. And to those who say that it doesn't make a difference, it just does. remember Bernie Sanders won his first race by 10 votes. Yes. That's all it takes. Yeah. No, it definitely matters. I think there's no way to say that it doesn't help that you have a previous run. It always helps because there's a momentum. There's a familiarity. You have experience with a campaign. And now you're talking about a smaller amount of constituents. It's infinitely more manageable to downsize the size of a campaign. Like I think about the idea of people who run statewide races. And I've always said, I'm never doing that. That's just not, I'm not running unless I lived in a place that was like, like Rhode Island or something really Mm -hmm. small. I'm not running that. And so you downsized uh-huh. what you, who you needed to reach. So I would think that is somewhat of an advantage in terms of the amount of voters you're needing to coalesce at this point. Absolutely. And, it, and from uh, the congressional standpoint, having to run statewide, even though, as you mentioned, we're not a state yet, right. but running statewide means running in all eight wards of the city. But I specifically, you know, represented and spent time in Ward 8 because of the disadvantage and because this is my home ward. So I was building out those relationships citywide that I was able to also cultivate close ones here in Ward 8 so that when it came time actually, you know, to make the decision to run for this commissioner role, I sought out some of those relationships. And I, I just spoke to some people and said, you know, what would you think about that? And they were like, oh, yeah, well, absolutely. And so it made it a little bit easier. So when I downsized, I was able to identify a couple of people to help volunteer and things like that based on my experience 
um, yeah. in, in the congressional run. So. We're speaking with Reverend Wendy Hamilton, Commissioner-Elect of Ward 8 in Washington, D.C. For those of you who do not know, Ward 8 is, uh, along with Ward 7, the two most underserved districts in the entire city. It's like District 12 in the Hunger Games. It's very much uh, a place that is, um, the, uh, the, the easiest way to describe it is the haves, which is, you know, places like Foggy Bottom and Georgetown, and the have-nots, which is Ward 7 and Ward 8, Ward 8 in particular, which is at the east end of the city. Um, why it's been decades, multiple generations, that very little has changed in Ward 8. Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? And what are you hoping to accomplish as the next commissioner of this area? Well, one of the things I hope to accomplish, I want to answer your second one first, is just to use my voice and those connections that I've made, those relationships that I have built yeah. to bring more attention, you know, and, and, and more conversation to the table about the needs of Ward 8. And, and, and specifically my single member district, which is Bellevue, which covers the eastern, the easternmost part of the east of the river. We're nearly in like Maryland. We're so close. Yeah. To, right. You know what I'm saying? If you're familiar, you can, hit, with you, you can, hit the, you can pretty much hit uh, FedEx field from where you are. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very close to there. And what I, my experience has been, I've lived here in D.C. for over 20 years. Um, in different wards, but I've lived here in Ward 8 now for going on eight years. And, and just the, the level of services, just the, the um, response times, the, the idea and the notion somehow that we are considered last after all budgeting decisions are made, after all uh, funds have been disseminated, it then becomes, oh, well, here's the leftovers and see what you can do with them. And I just feel like that's an injustice. I feel like that's immoral okay. in, in many ways. And like you all pointed out, there are folks that have lived here. As I was out canvassing for this particular role, I was talking to residents who have lived in their homes for 54 years. Wow. Um, and they are you know, wondering, why have we been forgotten? What is happening in this city? It is changing before my very eyes. DC was predominantly Black. Uh, when I moved here, I came to Howard University as a freshman a whole bunch of years ago. Uh, it was called Chocolate City because D.C. was about 70 percent black when I came. And as of the last census, the demographics are now 46, 46. Wow. wow. A lot of people aren't aware of that. So that's like makes citywide, citywide gentrification, like on a mass yeah. scale. Like just, but so where, where have people been migrating to, you know, like where has that population gone? They have gone primarily, the biggest increase has been what we call Ward 6, the wharf area, the waterfront, which has been built up and redeveloped. And it's, you know, fabulous. It used to just be a string of like seafood restaurants and a couple of nightclubs. And now there's condominiums and there's restaurants and they're building it up into a sports district. So they put the Nationals baseball stadium over there and the Audi field soccer stadium over there. And, and so they have built that up and that has seen the most explosive growth. And so what they do is also with the census every 10 years, they also redistrict the wards because the way our um, home rule is set up here in DC, all wards, um, 
endeavor to have no more than 90,000 people in them each. And if, if any one of them grows above the 90,000 um, within the 10 years, then they look to sort of re- redistribute and redistrict the wards to make them uh, the population more equitable. So um, Ward 6 grew and it, it kind of got split. So parts of it did get put in Ward 8 this time and parts of it got put in Ward 7, much to the chagrin of some of the residents, but that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, but the majority of Black Washingtonians, Native Washingtonians still reside and remain in Ward 7 and Ward 8 and very much want to preserve that history and that culture of the city, but finding a very difficult you know, time in doing that with the level of gentrification, with the pace of gentrification, certainly, and with the lack of equitable opportunities being um, distributed uh, throughout the city. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely glad that someone like you is going to be on that commission. I mean, I, it's like, on the one hand, you're seeing development, you're seeing all these great things, mm-hmm. but they're destroying whatever the history is of those neighborhoods. And it's always very patriarchal. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to designate this, this for you. We're going to give, we're going to give you this for this yes. instead of, right. Instead of building up by giving control to the people of those areas to build up what they want and what they see fit in their neighborhoods. And that's always to me been a huge issue. And that of course is why we're having so much gentrification, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it seems to me that, that it's very intentional, right? Like if you make sort of life unhappy and you make neighborhoods sort of fall apart, Mm -hmm. then you can go in and scoop them up for a cheap price, gentrify them and make a lot of real estate money. Like that's to me what I, how I see it. And if they really cared, then the money would go to reinvesting in those communities as they see fit. You're not suggesting that real estate developers are only looking out for themselves, are you? I'm, I'm suggesting that capitalism in all areas is not working for us. That's 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 what I'm suggesting. You're, you're, you're sounding as if somehow they're going into some of the even our public housing complexes and allowing them to become dilapidated, kind of forcing people to have to find someplace else to go. Yes. And then offering that building for sale for a dollar to a developer so that yes. they can come in. And, turn, know, them into an, turn them into an Airbnb. But so like it's they like, do all but then the what world. happens is that so the people that live there and maybe work there now we're not able to live near where they work. Exactly. Right. And so now you're connecting it to an unemployment problem for that person because now where they're maybe having to live, they don't have the means to work anywhere near there. Right. It's like it's it's really a huge problem. And they what they need is they need fighters protecting their neighborhood and the integrity of their neighborhood at all levels. And for those who do not think that it is not deliberate in terms of city and urban planning as far as the gentrification factors, the factors that result in people living in poorer areas, particularly in Washington, D.C., I personally think that Washington, D.C. has maybe the best metro system in the whole country. The problem is, is that the neighborhoods that need it the most are the ones who have the least amount of stops. Right. And they're always the furthest away from where you want to be and where you need to be. Whereas in the wealthy areas, there is a train stop literally within two or three blocks almost anywhere you go. Shocking. Listen, yeah, transportation, food, one of the things that I'm looking forward to, well, let me say this. 
it's a natural fit for me as a preacher and as a minister to speak up and call out injustice. And I've always looked at public service as a form of ministry. So I am going to speak. I'm going to use my, my, my platform, my voice and all of that to speak up for those who feel like they have no voice. So this was natural for me. And I, I, I don't, I, I, I can be nice and holy and I can also raise holy hell, you know, because I, you know, I don't like injustice. I don't, you know, I don't, it's just a part of my nature to call it out and, and to hold folks accountable. That's so, so that's something that I'm looking forward to doing. But one of the things, and for instance, when we're talking about these inequities um, that e- exist in Ward A, remember I mentioned there, you know, 90,000 folks roughly per yeah. ward. We have one full service grocery store in Ward 8 for 90,000 residents. One. Uh, How about that, Metopoly? Think about one. that. Think about that. Ward 3, our more affluent ward where American University is and, right. you know, going up near Chip, has 16. 16. I was going to say at least 16. a dozen. 16. Yeah. Full service grocery store. Wegman, Safeway. Jo- they have a plethora. We have Whole Foods. Got to have your Whole Foods. I mean, that's important. Yeah. One. I, that's unacceptable to me. That's unacceptable. And so, you know, they, they, they'll put in a little market about a year and a half ago. They went and got what I like to call, I called it a boutique bodega uh, in the article that I did, uh, the interview I did, <clears throat> because they they got up there and they said, oh, we've, we're, we're opening up this, you know, good foods market. And it's our you know, finally another full service grocery store for Ward 8. And we've worked so hard for this. They had a whole dog and pony show out in front of the location about what they were doing and bringing to the, you know, to the community and that. And it was not that. It was a whole gaslighting project. Forgive me, but I'm I'm calling out some of our leadership in the city because mm-hmm. they just announced a month ago that they're closing. And how did you bring this into the community it wasn't a good fit. I'm just saying it was not like a full service grocery. It really was like a mini mart, right? Like you could right. go in, but it had some boutique things and that's not a good fit for the area and the community that they, you know, wanted to serve. They had $9.99 salads in a mason jar in there. Who's who's buying that? I mean, <laughs> if you could afford it or not. And so the owners claiming financial, you know, problems is closed the market and there's been no outrage the same folks who danced in front of it as an accomplishment you they can't be found now to come and talk about why this is closing suddenly after a year and a half and what they plan to do to replace it well food deserts is huge like this is a huge huge problem um and it's never going to get the right attention because the people that need to care cannot make enough profit in those neighborhoods. And since our government refuses to subsidize them accordingly, see, I have no problem with the idea that people should make a profit. I have no problem with that. I think supermarkets should make a profit, but I also think there needs to be obligations just sort of like we put on developers. Fine. You want to develop, but you got to build this amount of schools. I think it's the same with supermarkets. We need to require them to serve communities, even when it's not for profit as part of the deal to exist. Um, And I also think we're big proponents of doing community gardens Mm -hmm. and at schools and doing the most we can to educate because having the availability 
-hmm. is important, but so is being educated on the food and on the different things. And that's also something that's often lacking in those food deserts. Right. Like I've spent a lot of time work, like doing this with my friend down here. And, and it's, it's amazing to me how little we teach our kids Mm -hmm. about that, that kind of stuff anywhere, but specifically in those neighborhoods that need it so badly. And that's what excites me about this role. Like you pointed out earlier, there's so much more tangible work I feel like I'm able to do in this capacity, uh, even more so than the federal role. And that's really what I was looking forward to because that was my whole goal as a congressional candidate. I was saying, I want to bring tangible solutions to D.C. residents because there are some things in that role, even though we don't have statehood, there are some things that I could do in that role that residents could say, this has an impact on my everyday life. Well, now, you know, local is where the magic happens. The local is where you really can put the pedal to the metal. And so that's what I'm looking forward to the most is being able to use my voice, certainly, but to make tangible changes that change the station of everyday lives of my residents. That's what I set out to do. And that's what I'm looking forward to um, in this particular role when I get sworn in in January. (laughs) I just want to ask one question. I just have one question. This is for just for the fact, this is sort of like, you know, a non sequitur, but what is the position? Like, what is the popular position on DC statehood? Like I, I do not claim to totally understand the pros, the cons, the what have you. I, my my tendency would be whatever the majority of people want should be what it is. The problem with D.C. statehood is not about having one Democratic congressional representative. It's about guaranteeing two Democratic U.S. senators. And that is the biggest issue uh, on Capitol Hill. And in some So is way, that what the holdup is? I would say without question. Okay, but my question was more like, what is popular opinion on this? Right. So there's very popular opinion in D.C. for statehood being granted to us, that that is something that as a tax paying citizen, right. uh, paying more taxes than 33 states in the, and, and, and not having representation, we feel like that's the bare minimum that we should have. We have more population than Wyoming, more population than Vermont and yet no representation. Now, the political pushback is, yes, we tend to vote Democratic and it would give us two additional Democratic seats. And so that's why Mitch McConnell you know, said it was dead on arrival uh, when it got past the House the first time and the Republicans held the Senate. And then this time it got passed and there just wasn't enough. Then Kirsten Sinema and um, Joe Manchin you know, could not be counted on to be a a vote for it. Uh, So they wanted more information, but the majority of the city is, you know, pro statehood. Now there is some, and particularly those um, in my area that, that need some more understanding. They don't fully understand what statehood would mean. Like, what are the ramifications? Like, what do we lose out on? If, if we, you know, if we give up at, you know, what we have now, there's programs like the uh, DC Tag, which is a $10,000 scholarship that's available, made available to DC residents who graduate from high school and, and they can use it at any state, you know, any school around the country. You know, will that go away? So there's definitely an education campaign that, you know, right. has to go along with this. But the prevailing notion and idea is that, yes, we deserve statehood. 
We and to be recognized because we are taxpaying citizens, we have the there and there's no good reason not to 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 grant it for us. And believe me, if if there was a chance that those two seats would be Republican, we would have been a state, you know. Oh, yeah. Two (laughs) years ago. Yeah. So so that 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 whole partisan approach to it is is not is not going to fly. Right. I just didn't know what was the predominant opinion because my thought would be to do what the majority of people want because I'm yep. just sort of democratic. We're not a way. democracy. Well, I just generally tend to think that the majority yep. should rule. It was sort of like we were taught that when we were really little and yet people can't seem to wrap their well, heads Well, there is it. a, well, because there's different types of people in different types of political factions and this is why the two-party system is terrible, terrible. and needs to go by the wayside. Terrible. But one thing, uh, there is a there is a there is a movement, however small it may be, but there is a movement in the GOP that is act, that actually advocates for minority rule. They actually believe that the majority of the citizenry. This is going back to the you know white male landowners of two hundred years ago, that basically believe that only a certain portion of the population should be able to vote. I actually agree, but just not with the same portion that they think should vote. Oh uh, well. You know, we could we, we could we just could, have I have portions vote. of people. I'm just saying, I I could get behind that yeah. for some people, but it isn't by, based on their reasons. I assure you. Yeah. So I <laughs> guess wealthy landowners would not be the ones whose voices are the ones that we need to be listening to, because right. again, they make up the smallest minority out of any voting block in the country, and yet they are the most powerful. So mm-hmm. we don't exactly live in a democratic republic, yeah. as people like it, to suggest we exactly. do. Exactly. You know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, please. I was going to say one of the things, too, about statehood is um, the federal government and folks, while they they tend to use us as like a political plaything, right? Because Mm. of our lack of statehood, you'll have Ted Cruz, you know, offer an amendment to change the curriculum for D.C. public schools. (laughs) You know, it's like, I'm sorry, sir. Senator from Cancun, I mean, Texas, uh, who's never even set foot in a D.C. public school. But they will, you know, make these decisions that impact us because they still have jurisdiction over the district, which is why the Roe v. Wade decision is so critical for everyone, but certainly for us. And while I was down at the Supreme Court, as soon as the leak came out, like, no, this can't happen because if Roe v. Wade, you know, was overturned and then if we get a Republican Congress, they could decide to ban, you know, abortion and health care in, in the district and we would have no say so because we're not a state. We couldn't block it. We, we couldn't we couldn't codify it, you know, for ourselves. And so this is just, you know, yet another example of why statehood is so critical for critical for us to be able to pr- protect ourselves from, you know, some this government overreach that we are, you know, constantly subjected to in this area. Well, you definitely shouldn't have to be paying taxes. Like I think people if you're living and you're not being you're being taxation without representation, like that's mm-hmm. unacceptable. So, I actually if they don't want to give you statehood, okay, but why are you all paying taxes then? Yeah. And what are you paying for? The argument. Yes. You're going to turn you're going to turn I, Ward 8 into a bunch of libertarian leftists. That's what's going to happen. No, I feel like coming no. there and, and helping facilitate a revolution. Well, having you in elected office is going to make a significant difference because you are presenting the economic populist voice that that part of the city has 
probably never had. And now they will have it. And now knowledge is power, as we all know. Neoliberals have not been their friends. No. And so that is going to be the odyssey that is going to occur. Is this a two-year term or a four-year term? It is two-year term. Yes, it is. Okay. And I, I am excited you know, to do just that, to, to educate, to advocate, and to empower. That's well, my goal. You will be doing a wonderful job of that. Reverend, we can't thank you enough. Obviously, it will be a very Merry Christmas for you but and But now family. we're going to have to call you Reverend Commissioner. Reverend Commissioner. Now you're having, now that's just, that's a lot. I'm just saying that's a whole lot of title there. That's the very, all right. <laughs> one of the very few people that we can honestly say will bring the, the intersection of church and state together the right way. Which, the right way. That's uh, right. Well, oh, and I would also like to say, I think the people that live in D.C. should get paid div- dividends. You know, the people that in Alaska, how they get dividends from the, the state. Oil the oil? Mm-hmm. You guys should get paid dividends for having to host like the slimiest of the slimiest people in your core. Yeah. Like there's not enough showers in a day to deal with the people that go there and work and that they only go there and benefit themselves in their states. And they just basically come in and crap all over your state yes. and say, you're not a state. Yeah. yeah. If you see, they yeah. should pay you. Maybe if they paid you for that and you guys right. got dividends, I, maybe I just, you know, Jen, you're asking, I'm telling you, I feel like going to ward eight and having a revolution. Well, I'm, come I'm, on up and sister, let's get it going because you I'll know, help you. I can help you. That's if you ever end up in DC, now you actually have a place that you go visit and actually look forward to so yeah no it's true i do yeah. like well i like dc i like i like all places with good food well and, so and my thing is just reminding people that dc is i mean while we have a lot of slimy people dc is more than just those slimy oh, people. Great city. oh i'm just saying city. those people yeah. should pay rent to the people that are the townies that are the people like you like the people that are from dc because mm-hmm. those are not the people that are the slimy people the people that are slimy people are the are people not even from there correct yeah. they're the ivory tower people that are sitting there and Oh, that's what I mean. You guys should get paid for that. I agree. And I'd like for them to come over here. You know, like you, you, you got talking a lot of stuff about, you know, what, you know, what we are and what we are. And, and that, why don't you, you know, st- step on the other side of Pennsylvania. Yeah, let, let me holler at you for a minute. Congratulations again. Yeah. Have a wonderful holiday in New Year. Go kick ass and take names. Damn right. <laughs> Thank you all for having me. I always enjoy talking to you. All right. Thanks, Reverend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. One of our favorites. She's lovely. And And you know uh, what? It is so much better for someone like that to be in a city commission position than wasting away. Well, she's definitely going to have an impact for sure. And I just think like the fact you'll have a representative there. Um, Hang on with that for a minute, please. Why? Uh, Just Okay. Um, And so I, I really do think that you know, the city uh, has not had representation there for a very long time, and now it's going to have it, especially in an area that needs it more than any other. I mean, that, I mean, we need to harp about- on how bad things are and how the same people who've been sitting there have let them get that way. This is the same way, like when we had Marcel on and he was talking about Clyburn and how it's like the poorest county in the country. And yet they, uh, obviously it's not working what you're doing. Like, let's try something else. So I just think it's interesting. Like you have these places with these dynastic kind of leadership situations and they're chronically in bad way. So I don't, it's it's very frustrating. So, um, this is, this is hopeful to me. I'm glad that there's somebody who's going to be a fighter at the, at the grassroots level for the people in, in DC. I didn't want you to smoke with the Reverend here. That's why she doesn't care. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you know Maybe what? Not. Don't ever do that to me again for that. Don't ever do I'm that. Sorry. I am a good enough judge of character. I am a grown woman. I can figure out what I can and cannot do. 
She is totally on the on the level, I assure you. I am sure she is. I'm I assure you she's on the level. Metalopoly's all in there freaking out that there's a Democratic reverend and that she potentially is pro-choice. Which she sounded pretty she pro-choice is. to me. And Yes. And believe you me, Metalopoly, all sorts of things exist that you never thought possible. Yeah, don't think that it, you got to remember the overwhelming majority of people world. that are pro-life are evangelicals and Catholics. That doesn't mean that every Christian believes that a woman doesn't have a right to choose. Nope. It's nonsense. And you know that. And Just like fact, Catholics are the only ones who believe in the Virgin Mary. Well, that? but the other thing is, is that very many, very religious people are very anti integrating church and state. They believe that it actually sort of sullies their religion. Correct. And so that is, and by the way, when religious organizations want to get involved in policy and state, that's great. Pay taxes, mm -hmm. pay taxes. You want to play the game, pay to play. So I, I think that there is no contradiction whatsoever of having somebody who is a religious person, whether or not, uh, we didn't really get into what her personal opinion is. But she is clearly in favor of religion not dictating policy. Mm -hmm. And if you support the idea of a majority rule, then we would have the right to choose. The majority of people in this country support a woman's right to choose, period. So the fact is we're being ruled by a very small group. We are being ruled by a minority. So maybe she just supports the idea of democracy and that the majority of people support this. And yeah. Yeah, so that's we, why. we had uh, the World Cup over the weekend. The final um, was won by Argentina. We have a very big Argentinian population here in South Florida. They were out in the streets of North Miami going absolutely berserk. Is that true? Yes, okay. very true. You know, when, I, when I was in Portugal, Portugal won that year. It was mm. 2016. And it, and it was like insane. 2016? That was when I was in Portugal. They won. Well, France is the champs. I'm champs. telling you in 2016. Cup. No, the World Cup's every four years, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's All I know is whatever it was. So. Okay, maybe it wasn't a World Cup. Maybe it was just some other giant yeah, thing. Maybe. All I know is there was like crazy in the streets. Anyway, Craziness. Uh, so our good friend Elon Musk, of course, was at the World Cup, and he was in the... I guess the the executive of executive booths with all of the uh, Qatarian royal family. Uh, well, uh, for those of you who may or may not know, uh, if you did not actually see this, it's pretty pathetic. But uh, Elon Musk had a very special guest with him in the booth, uh, or I should say the suite. Um, this to me is just kind of the photograph to kind of, uh, how do I turn this into? Okay. Okay. I make me a genius. Cause I'm such a dummy. I'm not. I'll put looking at tab. I think that's it. Is that it? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Oh no. It just opened the article. Uh, so let me it opened see. the article. Well, that's not what we wanted. Bear oh, with wait, us for a second. Go We're up. Well, this best. is. So open like a new window. Okay. There you go. There we go. Uh, well, actually, that doesn't help me. Uh, oh, wait. Actually, maybe this will. Let's see what this does. Okay. Okay. So I think this is going to solve it. Let's try. I, I don't know. I'm a genius. I with your help, of course. I Yeah. So for those of you who may or may not know, Elon Musk was at the World Cup. And of course, he was with Jared Kushner. Who else would you possibly want to share a booth with than him? And so, as you guys will now see, this is absolutely ridiculous, but not entirely surprising. And why is that? Because 
as I have been trying to point out to all of you guys, if you are willing to listen, not everybody is. Elon Musk is not your friend. No. He is not doing anything that is what you would consider to be. I mean, again. Oh, we're really going on Elon Musk tonight, huh? All right, we're going in on him. I'm, I'm going in on him because of this, because Jared, listen, I think Hunter Biden is very likely a criminal and has done some really nefarious things, perhaps on behalf of his father. But if you think for one second that he is any worse than somebody like Jared Kushner. Oh, no, no, he's not even, Jared Kushner is so far out of that realm in terms of like nefarious behavior. Hunter Biden, oh my Billions God. Billions of dollars. That's what he's, that's what he's able to do is negotiate billions of dollars with these individuals. I mean, you think you've got chauvinism problems here in the United States. Why don't you go over to Qatar and see what it's like there? And this is the people that they want to do business with. I appreciate that, Metalopoly. Good. Rusty, we're on the same team there. Yeah. We're on the good. same team. And so what leads us into our Don't put sp- it up until you, oh, okay, never mind. What le- I, thought you were, I thought you were clicking on that. Sorry. So what leads us into our wonderful return this evening of bootlicker. We had been getting, I had gotten a few requests. People were saying they missed our bootlicker. And so we used to do it every week. Okay. So what we have now is we have ourselves a new bootlicker. So we're going to start being a lot more cognizant and bringing back our bootlicker periodically. And we are picking the perfect opportunity to do a bootlicker that I have been wanting to do for quite some time. And it couldn't have picked a better time to do this. Mind you, I didn't even know who this person was until yesterday. Oh, these are two of the biggest trolls you can imagine. One of the twin brothers. Those of you who know, our bootlicker of the week is... Brian Krasenstein. I am sure you guys remember. It's these Krasenstein. Krasen- He's got oh, ass in there. Oh, Krasen- Krasenstein. Okay, yeah, Kras. He's pretty crass. But that would be the C, but he's got ass in his name. Okay, well, he's acting like an ass. And why was he acting like an ass? Well, Mr. Musk decided to put out a Twitter poll the other day deciding whether or not he should stay on or step down as CEO of Twitter. He's still the owner and still probably making all the decisions, but is he going to be the CEO? And the poll ended and it was 57 step down, 43 stay. So Mr. Krasenstein. Krasenstein. Krasen, Krasenstein. That's how I'm saying it. He's crass. Mr. Bootlickingstein <laughs> decided <laughs> to say, because keep in mind, Krasenstein's account was suspended, but for some reason, Elon Musk decided to bring it back. Whatever that reasoning was, I don't know. But it probably involves some bootlicking. So Krasenstein says, I vote no. And is it Krasenstein or Krasenstein? I don't know. You, you would know better than that. No, I. but it could be either. I know yeah. Weinstein and Weinstein. I know both. So Krasenstein, we'll just, we'll take, we'll go okay. back and forth. Okay, you know? Krasenstein. Rothenstein, Rothenstein, <laughs> Daniel Rothenstein. I vote no because you show that you want to improve. Own your mistakes, move forward, improve. Prove with exclamation point. Uh, Could you attach your sycophantic mouth anymore to his ass? Like, I don't think so. But anyway, can we all just comment on the graphic, please? It was well put together by me, I must say. It's been a while. Well, that Look is, at that Meat Musk picture. I mean, talk about Italian boots. I mean, those are fantastic. I mean- And who is the gentleman know, in the back? 
The gentleman in the back is his twin brother. Is it Ed Krasenstein? Yeah, Krasenstein. Krasenstein. They're very crass. It almost makes too much <laughs> sense. So why do we bring this up? Not just because it is the bootlicking of bootlicking, but why do we use them? Because they are bootlickers. They are bootlickers of corporate power. These are two of the biggest grifters, anti-Trumpers that were, um, oh, Let's just go to their Twitter profile and tell you exactly what they are and who and what they who they are and what they do, because this is very, very important stuff. And without question, you know, the Krasenstein. It isn't about whether or not he made a good point. A lot of people might have made that same point, but for different reasons. This is a sycophant. So Mr. Krasenstein is fighting for the truth, pushing for unity. Follow my brother, Ed Krasenstein decentralized social profile. And then, of course, he has 592,500 followers. What they don't tell you generally is that they follow 529,100 people. Now, why would you do something like that? Mm, Could it be that you're a troll account and that your goal is to try to be as relevant as possible for corporate establishment interests? Because that's what they do. And the brother Ed says, living in reality fact-checking alternative facts. Follow my twin, Web3 Futurist. And where do they live? (sighs) They live in Florida, because of course they do. They live across the way in Fort Myers, about two hours and change from where we are. Shocking, but not shocking, because that's Florida. Because Florida's- Because Florida. Billy Billy Corbin likes to say. Just because Florida. Because Florida. These guys- are the embodiment of why people hate politics. They don't stand for anything. Their interest is to figure out how can we possibly grift our way into some type of a comfortable living by doing this. Let's suck up to Elon Musk, who's as anti-worker as it gets, no different than Jeff Bezos or Bill, Bill I almost called him Billy Gates. That's, that's, that's what he calls himself on the weekends when he's hanging out with his chums. Yeah, that's what he does. <laughs> But Elon Musk is not for working people. He's as anti-worker as it gets. Just look at his practices running Tesla. And so here you have these guys who liberals think are like their darlings, that they are fighting against, they're fighting the resistance against Trump. But in reality, they're just here to make a buck. That's what they're doing. Now, how well are they being paid? I don't know. I don't really care. All I do know is that they're back and they're going to do what they have done before. They are guys who set up an office where you had a whole bunch of cell phones where as soon as a tweet would go off, they would hit retweet, retweet, retweet. Again, it's a trolling farm. It's no different than, oh man, Sally Albright, if you guys remember that name. They're really no different. They're all just kind of cut from the same cloth. So that is our show for the evening. Guys, if you're not subscribed, just subscribe right now. It's free. It's easy. We put out really good content. It's a variety of stuff, all different topics. Yeah. So just subscribe. It's free. And share it. Share our information. Patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you could become a special person as part of our organization. We would certainly appreciate it. Do we have any new patrons? I get an email when we do. No, we do not. Oh, and I guess we don't have a new one. I thought we were going to have it, but alas. Hopefully, 
Those of you guys who are out there, remember for as little as $5 a month, you can become one. But if you are feeling extra generous, $10 a month will get you the Lulu sticker and the Mansion Parliamentarian bumper sticker, as you guys can see. This would be a great holiday gift for any of you that are interested. But if you are really feeling generous and want to be a $25 a month patron, it helps. You can get the Tri-Blend, the wonderful Generational Change jersey. It's a jersey. You all know you want one. They're really cute, guys. They, they really are. are. They really, have this kind of retro vibe. They're really cute. They really rock. I designed them. She did. He was sort of, he was doubting it. He had doubts about my concept. He was just wanted to take our logo and stick it on the front of a shirt. Is that what I wanted? Yes. You wanted the logo just to be on the front of the shirt. Oh, well. And I said, no, let's have it be something that has like a meaning to it and then have the logo on the back. Well. It was all me. Me, me, me. But we learned our lesson. Then, of course, if you are feeling a little gun shy about getting online and putting your credit card information on our site and keeping it there, be more like Double K, who is extra, extra, extra generous because, of course, it is Hanukkah and Hanukkah week. And, of course, Christmas is right around the corner. But if you cash do not want to better. do that, Cash App for a lot of people is perhaps the better way to go. So if you could go over to it Cash helps. App, dollar sign, Gen Change. That is how you can contribute. And, the, and that money, like we we don't make any real money here, people. Like we, I bear it like, and I pay people that do work for us as money comes in. Like we're pretty pitiful. No, we're not pitiful. We're no, just no. I mean, big. we're just small. We're very small guys. So, but we'll see what happens with Rumble. So we're going to be doing some work on there. But see all of your money us. that comes in, we donate to local efforts, to community mm. service, to on the ground, grassroots, everything from community gardens um, and food distributions, just different things um, with organizations that we know where the money gets exactly where it needs to go. Um, and especially now that we're not in campaign season and we're not making any sort of political donations, all we're doing is educational stuff like this podcast and the money that comes in helps us do that and helps us donate to local causes. Absolutely. And so for those of you who are probably aware, uh, we have our wonderful presentation coming up. Um, I believe I can hit this. Wait, which one are you trying to show? Festivus for the no, rest of us. No, that's not there. You don't have it. Where did you send it? It's on that particular. On which one? Um, 10-3? Well, the the slides that are on 12-14, they would be there. Okay. No? I know. I have to remove it. You have to change oh. it to this, but hold on. There. It was on that set. 6 p.m. Friday evening. The Festivus Guys, for the rest of us will be happening. It's a Festivus for the rest of us. So you're definitely going to want to tune in because we will be airing political grievances, possibly some feats of strength. I'm airing all grievances. Okay, and then Festivus miracles. We don't know what the hell those are, but you know. I'm having some Festivus miracles. Just actually, for the we best. should do. We're going to do a contest. Okay, I think the person that in the chat that comes up with the best Festivus miracle gets a Gen Change jersey. We're going to have lots of wonderful guests, so you better tune in. Don't be square. A lot of there. fun content creators are coming on, guys. We're going to all be airing our grievances. It's going to be really funny. It'll be awesome. Tremendous. Incredible. Really great. You're going to love it. So with that said, we appreciate you guys. We love the support. It really means a lot for those of you celebrating Hanukkah. Enjoy. And, of course, we will be doing our Festivus for the rest of us on Friday. We'll see you then. I got to get the Festivus pull out. It'll be ready.
Have a good night, guys. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.